Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. by that video, we are spending this entire month looking at the single greatest occurrence in history, the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. This is, after all, the core of our faith. Uh, One of the many unique things about Christianity is that we trace our origin to one particular event, 20 centuries ago, uh, because one day there was not a church, and then the next day there was. On Friday and Saturday, the followers of Jesus were disillusioned, disappointed, and almost disbanded. And then the next day, they weren't. Because Jesus died, and then he rose from the dead, and he is alive today. There have been other great teachers, and there have been other miracle workers. But there is only one who defeated death, and his name is Jesus. And so leading up to Easter next month, we're spending this entire month looking at the cross, and, and looking at Jesus' work through his death and his resurrection, and we're just turning it like a diamond to admire its many glittering facets. And we're gonna look at one particular facet today. We're talking about the cross of redemption. Our text for the morning is Romans chapter three. You'll want to have that open in front of you in your Bible or your Bible app. And many scholars argue that this paragraph we're in today, Romans three, verses 21 through 26, is the single most important paragraph ever written. Uh, It'll be on the screen, so let's read it out loud together. Paul says this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. I remember in college, sitting in class, when our professor told us that this is arguably the greatest paragraph ever written, and then we read the text, and to be completely honest, my gut reaction was, I don't get it. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's good, there's some good stuff in there, but the greatest paragraph ever written, really? And yet, the deeper I dive into it, the more I become convinced that it's true. And so I wanna come at this text from two different angles today. First, I just wanna teach the text, and then secondly, I wanna tell a story. But first, we're just gonna explain the text. So buckle up, we're gonna slug through this thing bit by bit to try to figure out what Paul means here. Let's start at the beginning. Paul says, but now. Now, in order for us to understand this, we gotta look at everything that Paul's been doing in Romans up to this point to understand where he's coming from. 
And Paul has spent Romans chapters one, two, and three building a case that everyone in the world is sinful, that we're all guilty. He says the Jews, God's special people, God gave them the law to follow, but, but, but they didn't even follow it, so they're guilty. And, and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they're not off the hook because they sinned against their own consciences. So everybody, everybody, we're all guilty. And Paul summarizes this predicament in Romans chapter three, verse 20. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In other words, you can't be a good enough person a nice enough person with enough good deeds to save yourself. You can't do it. And if you can't set yourself free, then that means you're a slave. That's what Jesus says in John chapter eight, verse 34. He said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now that's bad news for us. It means we're up a creek without a paddle. That means that you are standing on trial before the judge of the universe and the gavel is about to come down and declare you guilty. But then, suddenly, in the very next verse, Paul comes bursting on the scene with two of the best words in the Bible. He says, but now, this is huge. This means something new is happening. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And Paul gets really excited here. In fact, this whole paragraph that we just read is one long run-on sentence in the Greek. Paul would not have done well in English class. So what does he mean here? That the righteousness of God has been made known. Well, again, we gotta take a step back. Let's zoom out a little bit. The whole book of Romans, the purpose is this, to answer two key questions. Question number one, can God be trusted? And question number two, how are we saved? We're gonna look at this text through that lens today. Two questions, can God be trusted and how are we saved? Question number one, can God be trusted? I hope so, yeah. <laughs> but if you're a Jewish person and you've thought your whole life that the nation of Israel, we're God's special people, right? And God gave us the law and so if we follow the law, then we get to stay God's special people. But now, all of a sudden, God's welcoming all these non-Jews into the family, all these Gentiles, and they don't have to follow the law. They don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to follow all these dietary restrictions. They get to eat bacon. And so they're thinking, can God be trusted? Did he flip-flop? What happened here? Did he go back on the plan? Is God really gonna be true to his word? Can God be trusted? And Romans is the answer. You see, if we are guilty, like Paul says, then that put, puts God in a little bit of a predicament. That means that because of his character, God has like three different obligations. Obligation number one is that God has to be true to his promise to Israel. So how's he gonna be true to his promise to Israel? And number two, how is he also going to exercise his justice and wrath on the sins of the world? And number three, how's he also gonna show mercy to those who call out to him? How can God do all three of those things? Can God be trusted and how are we saved? And here's Paul's answer. He says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Let's go back to the very beginning. Adam and Eve, they sin, they fail to obey God, but God doesn't leave them there. He puts a plan in motion to save the world. 
And he chooses this one special family and that family grows and they become the nation of Israel. And God said, you're gonna be my special people. He said, but, 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 but it's gonna be a deal. You're my special people, but you gotta hold up your end of the deal. And your end of the deal is that you have a job. The job of the nation of Israel was to show the world what God is like, to show the world how to obey God, to be a light to the world, to show them how to live in God's blessing. And yet Israel failed. They sinned just as much as everybody else. But even though Israel didn't hold up their end of the deal, God still held up his end. He didn't scrap the plan. Rather, God sent his son Jesus to earth to be a faithful Israelite, to fulfill the mission of Israel that they failed. And so we see Jesus doing this in his ministry. Jesus is the light to the world that Israel was supposed to be. Jesus shows the world how to obey God like Israel was supposed to. Jesus shows the world how to, ob- how to live in the blessing of God like Israel was supposed to. Jesus shows the world who God is. So God is still faithful to the plan. Can God be trusted? Yeah, he held up both ends of the deal. He didn't flip-flop. And so Paul says now, he says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we gotta understand how radical this would have been for a Jewish person reading this. Because for a Jewish person like Paul, the fundamental division of humanity is Jew, Gentile, us versus them. And now Paul's saying that actually at the most basic level, we're all the same, there's no distinction. We can say it like this. Liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, welfare, middle class, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. At the most basic level, we're all the same. We're all guilty before God. And that's true. Because every one of us, we have known the right thing to do and chosen not to do it. And we've known the wrong thing to do and we've done it. And even when we do our best, and a lot of the time we don't do that, but even when we do our best, we still don't make the cut. That's what Paul's saying. He's using courtroom imagery here. He's saying that we are guilty. We are not innocent. And he continues with this courtroom imagery when he says, and all are justified freely by his grace. Paul says that we're justified. That means declared innocent. It's another courtroom word. He says that even though you're guilty, you can be declared innocent. How? By grace, he says. It's a gift, it's free. You can't earn it, nothing on your resume, no qualifications, no Christian service. It's a gift, it's free. You can't earn it. But that gift came at a great cost. So how how are we justified and declared innocent? Paul says, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So now Paul's moved on from courtroom imagery and now he's using imagery from the slave market. Because redemption is a word that would describe the act of buying a slave or it would be described as purchasing an object from a pawn shop or paying a ransom to get a prisoner of war back. Redemption, paying a ransom. Years ago, there was a man named Kevin Tunnell. And Kevin Tunnell was drunk New Year's Eve night and he got in his car to drive home and not a while later his Chrysler smashed into a little blue Volkswagen and killed the 18-year-old girl behind the wheel. And this girl's parents obviously took Kevin to court and instead of suing him for millions of dollars of damages, which was their right, they instead petitioned for and got a sentence much more painful. Kevin Tunnell's sentence was to write a $1 check to the parents of that deceased girl 
every Friday for 18 years. He used to make it out in her name. She died on a Friday, 18 years was how long she lived. Just a $1 check once a week, 18 years. Kevin Tanell thought he was getting off easy. But as the years wore on, check after check after check, reminding him of his guilt, it began to crush him. And some of you are still doing that today with your sin. You're doing that with your guilt, with your past. It's there every day in the back of your mind. You're trying to work it off. You're trying to do enough good things so that you don't feel the guilt, feel the shame anymore. You're trying to pay your own way out of debt, trying to do enough good things to outweigh the bad, but you can't do it. Remember, you're enslaved. You have incurred a massive debt and there is no amount of good works you could ever do to earn your way out of it. We require someone else to come and pay the debt on our behalf. Thankfully, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He redeems us, he pays the price. So follow the logic here. We're asking the question, can God be trusted? Yes. How are we saved? Paul says we're justified, declared innocent. How are we justified? Paul says we're redeemed. Jesus pays the price. Well, how does he do that? Paul says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, Paul started with this courtroom imagery, then he moved to slave market imagery, but now he's using temple imagery. Jesus is a sacrifice of atonement, he said. Many theologians and scholars agree that Romans is the most important theological book in the Bible. And that the most important chapter in Romans is this one, chapter three. And that the most important verse in chapter three is this one, verse 25. And that the most important word and the most important verse and the most important chapter and the most important book in the Bible is this word right here, propitiation. Propitiation is the word. Jesus is a sacrifice of atonement. That's what Paul's saying. Um, Now, propitiation means that, that he absorbed the wrath of God so that we don't have to. Because God hates sin. Sin destroys his creation. It destroys us. And because God is loving, because he is just, because he's holy, he can't just let that slide. He has to exercise his wrath on sin. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter one when he said the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Please understand, if you don't get this, you'll miss the whole thing. The only thing we deserve is God's wrath. That's it. On my own, I deserve his wrath. And so back in the Old Testament, the way that the Jewish people would avoid God's wrath is they would make sacrifices, sacrifices of atonement. It means they would restore the relationship between them and God. And every year there was something called the Day of Atonement and a priest would sacrifice a goat and then the high priest would take the blood of that goat into the innermost part of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. And there on top of the Ark of the Covenant, that's called the mercy seat, right between the wings of those two angels. And the high priest would go and he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat and God would pass over the sins of the people. The goat would get God's wrath and the people would get God's mercy. But the thing is, it was never meant as a permanent solution. The temple and those sacrifices, they were just a signpost on the road pointing to Jesus. And now Paul is saying that Jesus is the mercy seat. 
He is the great high priest, and through his blood sacrificed for us, Jesus is the place where he takes God's wrath and we get God's mercy. Propitiation. 1 John chapter four says it like this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. There's our word again, propitiation for our sins. So Jesus absorbs the wrath of God so that we don't have to, propitiation. So again, let's track with Paul's logic, right? We're asking our questions. Can God be trusted? Yes. How are we saved? Paul says we're justified, declared innocent. How are we justified? Paul says Jesus redeems us. He pays the price to buy us back. How does he redeem us? Paul says that he is the propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement for our sin. He says that God did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So can God be trusted? Can he meet all of these obligations at once? Well, yes, in his perfect character, he can. God does fulfill his promise to use Israel to bless the whole world through Jesus. And God does exercise his justice and his wrath on sin on Jesus. And God does extend mercy to those who cry out to him and trust him through Jesus. And Paul says that he does this so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I was having a conversation with a Jewish man a while back and he was wrestling with some of these same issues that Paul's dealing with here. And this guy asked me, he said, how, how can God have mercy and justice at the same time? And he didn't have an answer. And it is a conundrum. Because if God does exercise his justice on the world, he would be right to do so. And yet there would be no hope for any of us. But if God just kind of like forgives our sins and sweeps them under the rug and says, ah, no big deal, don't actually worry about it. Then he can't be a righteous judge. He can't bring justice to the oppressed. He can't restore all of creation. And so this Jewish man was wrestling with this question. How can God be both merciful and just at the same time? And he didn't have an answer. But we do. And so I told him, look at the cross. God doesn't set his justice aside. Rather, he turns it on himself. The cross is God's justice and God's mercy fully displayed. Not half of either, but all of both. Sin punished and sinners pardoned. So he is both just and the one who justifies, Paul says. Which is why if you want to know what God is like, there is nothing better for you to do than to gaze at the cross of Jesus Christ to meditate on the reality that Jesus died for you because this bloody body hanging from the cross at Calvary is the clearest revelation of who God is. So now, we've taught the text. Let me tell a story. It's a love story, but not the fairy tale kind. This story's true. It happened about 750 years before Jesus in the land of Israel. We find this story in the Old Testament book of Hosea. There's a young prophet, a preacher, whose name is Hosea, and one day God shows up to talk to him. God says, Hosea, Hosea, my special people, Israel, they, they promised to be faithful to me, but Hosea, they haven't been faithful. 
My people have chased after money and power. They've gone running after strange gods. Hosea, my people have broken their vows. And so Hosea is gearing himself up for what comes next. He's expecting God to tell him to go preach some hellfire and damnation on these people to prepare themselves because the wrath and anger of God's gonna fall on them for what they've done. But that's not what God tells him to do. Instead, God says, Hosea, I want you to get married. And your marriage is going to be a living, breathing object lesson of my love for these people. I say he's thinking, well, okay, Lord, gotta admit, didn't see that one coming. You surprised me there. But you know, you know, the more I think about it, that's not such a bad idea. I've been thinking for a while now. I probably ought to get myself a wife. You know, I think I have just the girl in mind. Hold on, Hosea. I want you to get married, and I want you to marry a prostitute. <laughs> Hold on, come again, Lord. I could have sworn that I heard you say a prostitute. Her name is Gomer. Really, Lord, Gomer? <laughs> Couldn't have thought of a better name than that? Come on. <laughs> her name is Gomer, and I want you to marry her. Can you imagine the questions that must have been swirling around in Hosea's mind? But, but, but Lord, Lord, I, I've kept myself pure. What am I going to tell my family? What are the people at church going to think? You know, Lord, I've always told them that missionary dating is a bad idea. Don't be unequally yoked, I said. And yet Hosea obeys. Hosea chapter one, verses two and three says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore a son. This unlikely marriage, the prophet and the prostitute, was going to be a picture of God's love for the unlovely. You can imagine Hosea, he's nervous as he goes and picks out the diamond, you know, but he gets the ring and he goes out to the street corner, gets down on one knee and proposes to the dark-eyed call girl. She says yes. And they pick out a date and she wears a white dress. She walks down the aisle and says, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And maybe she even meant it. Maybe, maybe she tried to be a good prophet's wife. She got rid of her old clothes, bought some new dresses, not quite so low cut. Maybe they had a good marriage for a while. You know, after, after they got back from the honeymoon, not, while, not, not very long later, they found out they were pregnant. And that's exciting. But eventually, you know, the long nights up with the baby and the slow pace of domestic life, the thrill of motherhood began to wear off and the purity and goodness of Hosea the prophet that was once so charming now just seemed kind of boring. And so Gomer began to Reconnect with some old friends and the thrill of the nightlife just became a little bit too much to handle. And so one night she went and dug out some of her old clothes and she just went out on the town just, just once. The next time she went out, she didn't come back for three days. And Hosea would just lay there in bed night after night wondering where she was. 
On the rare occasions that Gomer was home, she was distant and cold. But then, lo and behold, she was pregnant again. And Hosea thought, yes, yes, maybe this is a gift from God. Maybe, maybe now she'll settle down. Maybe this will bring us together. But after the second baby was born, she only got more and more restless. More late nights out on the town, leaving Hosea at home to take care of the kids and help them say their prayers and make sure they got to bed on time. Gomer got pregnant again. By this point, Hosea had heard the whispers and the rumors going around town about the scandal in the preacher's house, and his suspicions were confirmed. Babies weren't his. But he loved them anyway. And then late one night after the kids were in bed, he found the note under his pillow from Gomer. Hosea, I'm sorry. I just can't be tied down anymore. And just like that, Gomer was gone. Oh, and people around town, they talked. Yeah, preacher tells us how to live, can't even keep his own family together. And his friends would say, ah, good riddance, Hosea. She didn't deserve you anyway. But even though Gomer was gone from the house, she wasn't gone from Hosea's heart. For some reason, he still loved her. And from time to time, he would see her off in the distance, arm in arm with some other man, exotic clothes and an exciting lifestyle. Every time he saw her, it was a new man. But you know, when you live fast and hard, it kind of does a number on you. And as time wore on, eventually Gomer wasn't so young anymore. She bounced around from man to man and bed to bed, and eventually she found herself out on the street, belonging to some man who would just buy and sell her like property. Who knows how long she'd been gone when God spoke again to Hosea in chapter three, verse one. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again. Though she's loved by another man, and is an adulteress. What? Lord, haven't I suffered enough? Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. You see, this story isn't just about Hosea and Gomer. It's not even just about God and Israel. This is the story of God and us. A God who wants us to just rest at home with him and in his love. But we insist on running off and, and selling ourselves into the arms of every other lover who only just leaves us empty in our pursuit for purpose and pleasure. You know, the law said that a wife who cheated on you could be stoned. But God says to take her back. And so Hosea sets out to look for his wife, the former prostitute who's back in it again. Can you imagine what that was like? Where he had to go to find her? All those parts of town your mama told you never to wander into, those streets that no man of God would ever dare be seen on. How dark were those streets? How disgusting were those alleys? And yet that's exactly where he went looking for his wife. And then he heard about the auction going on downtown. 
Slavery was widespread back then. Men and women would be bought and sold like livestock. And some historians say that when a woman was auctioned off, she would be stripped of her clothes and forced to stand there before the crowd. Perhaps that's the kind of situation Hosea found himself walking into. And as Gomer's dragged up there onto the auction block, the people in the crowd began to notice Hosea's there standing in the back. <laughs> it's come to see her get what she deserves. Good for him. Wait! Hosea shouts, that's my wife! And Gomer looks up. Can you imagine what she's thinking as her eyes meet his, the husband that she's left? That's my wife, Hosea says. I don't care who you think she is. The auctioneer shouts back, she's for sale. Well, how much? Hop in line. And so the bidding starts. We've got an old prostitute here. How much will you give? Ah, I'll give you 10 shekels. Somebody hollers out from the back. Another one. I'll, I'll give you 12. Jose shouts, I'll, I'll, I'll give you 15 shekels. F 15, I've got 15. Someone else, 15 shekels and a, a homer of barley. Jose hollers back, uh, 15 shekels and a, a, a homer and a half of barley. Boom, the gavel sounds. Hosea makes his way through the crowd, lays the money down, and he buys back his wife. Chapter three, verse two says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. I bought her, he says. Wait, wait, hold on, Hosea. She's your wife. She's already yours. But he buys her. He pays for what already belongs to him. Now, this isn't the first time Gomer's been bought. She's been bought before. But those other men bought her to use her. Hosea buys her to heal her. He doesn't buy her to punish her. He buys her to redeem her. Verse three, he says, then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will behave the same way towards you. In other words, Gomer, come home. You were already mine, but, but now I paid for you. Just, just come home. I've, I've loved you and I have been faithful to you. Please just come home to me. Church, don't you understand? This is God. And you and I, we're Gomer. Psalm 24, one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You already belong to him. He made you. And yet you insisted on running off and selling yourselves into the arms of every other lover who only left you feeling empty and disgusting and enslaved. And still you didn't come home. But he didn't leave you there. No, he came. Jesus Christ stepped down out of heaven and he came and he said he came to seek and to save the lost and he went to the darkest and most disgusting places and he stood face to face with all of the evil of humanity to find you. And when he found you, you weren't all put together. You weren't so nice and neat. No, you were in chains. 
You were enslaved. You were naked, and so was I. But our gracious and faithful Father said, How much? What's the price? The blood of my son? Okay. Let him go. I'll pay it. Take the wrath off of them, but put, put it on me instead. And now we've been redeemed. For Hosea, it was the price of a common slave, but for God, it was the blood of his own son. First Peter chapter one says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. It wasn't some silver or some barley that could buy you back. There's no amount of good works that could redeem you. There's nothing you could ever do or say to pay the price that you owe. There's no amount of accomplishments. There's nothing on your resume that could pay the debt. But he says, we've been redeemed through the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation who absorbs the wrath of God so that we can stand before him as free men and women. He is our justification so that we can stand before the judge declared innocent despite of our guilt. He alone is our redemption and he has paid the debt so that we can be free. John chapter eight, verse 34, Jesus said, we just read it. He said, if you're a sinner, if you sin, then you're a slave to sin. But just two verses after that, he says, oh, but if the son set you free, you're free indeed. You're free, church. And I don't know where you stand with God today. But I know there's some of you in this room who've not let him pay yet. And I know you're dragging around your chains and you're trying to do it yourself and it's time to just let it go. It's time to come home. Please, come home. Don't put it off. He's already paid. You can come talk to Steve or I, as always. You can find somebody in a blue t-shirt. Go to mypcc.info. Tap on the baptism tab. Please, please don't put it off. Because if you're lost, he will find you. And if you run away, he will come after you. And if you are enslaved, he will buy you back. And if you are naked and ashamed, he will cover you. And you may have given up on him, but he has not given up on you. And all you have to do is say, okay. I trust you. I'm coming home. Let's pray. How many times, Lord, have I run off? Have I left home? chased everything else seeking pleasure and purpose and satisfaction and meaning and it only left me empty and then when I found myself in chains how many times Lord did I try to just do a good enough stuff so I could think I could stand before you with a clear conscience how many times did I try to work my way back how many times did I try to set myself free and I can't do it we can't do it and yet, Jesus, you came and you found us. And you went all the way to the cross. And you died to pay the price. And you are alive again and you are welcoming us with open arms to come home to you. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you that we get to partake in the freedom that you have won on our behalf. And so, Jesus, we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup and we're going to remember again and we're going to praise you even though our sins were like scarlet you have washed us as white as snow 
And if there are those in this room today, Father, who have not yet received that freedom, bring them home. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.